0: Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. In the United States, lawyers are generally admitted to practice in one particular state. But with clients involved in business that may cross state lines, how does that impact the lawyer's ability to represent the client's needs? Hello and welcome to Talks on Law at the Cutting Edge of Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Our guest today is Sarah McShea, an expert on legal ethics and the issues involving across cross-jurisdictional practice. Welcome to Talks on Law.
1: Thanks, Joel. Nice to be here again.
0: Lovely to have you. When is a lawyer practicing law, and when is he simply giving advice or suggestions?
1: A license to practice law, a, a license as a lawyer, Entitles a lawyer to hold her, him or herself out as a lawyer of a particular jurisdiction. It entitles a lawyer to appear in court on behalf of a client, to give advice, legal advice. It entitles a lawyer to enter into lawyer client relationships. Do you need are... to be
0: admitted to put the uh, ESQ at the end of your name?
1: Yes, you do. Good question. By the way, all you young budding lawyers, uh, there don't use those three letters, ESQ, until you've been formally admitted to the bar in the state where you're proposing to use the ESQ.
0: <laughs> there, we're talking about holding yourself out to be a lawyer. What else?
1: Well, we're also talking about giving advice, so that it's a, I think, a misperception in the field that only lawyer, only litigators are bound by the rules of professional conduct. Lawyers doing transactional work, general corporate advice or, or help people but never going to court. These matters don't really, are they're not significant. You don't really need a license for that. You can do it anywhere. So of course that's not true. If, if you asked the clients why they're paying legal fees, they would say for the legal advice if i didn't need a lawyer for this i'd probably i might use an investment banker or or or, some, or, an, uh, account. or an accountant or something like that but clients want the benefit of the attorney client relationship they want the benefit of lawyer's expertise and professionalism they want ultimately the rules of professional conduct binding the lawyer's conduct and protecting the client, so that attorney-client privilege, work-product privileges and things like that, that the, these are things that are exist between lawyers and clients, between lawyers and, and, and their firms for the protection of the client.
0: So is, is everything that a lawyer does considered legal practice?
1: Well, no, not everything a lawyer does is considered legal practice. It is a truism in in the professional responsibility field that, for example, we say, accountants give accounting advice, they can give tax advice. That's not the practice of law when done by a, a tax professional or a licensed CPA. If a lawyer does it, however, if a lawyer gives tax advice, that is the practice of law. Even if it's word for word the same advice given by the accountant. So there are in some cases not bright lines and all over the United States jurisdictions have attempted without success to define the practice of law for all purposes And it's basically proved to be impossible to do. There are other things which are the practice of law because they're done by a lawyer, but would not be the practice of law if done by a non-lawyer. Maybe drafting
0: certain agreements could be done by a lawyer that would be practice of law if it was done by a non-lawyer, wouldn't be.
1: Right, certainly non-lawyer business professionals often draft their own agreements. They don't want to pay for their lawyer to do it, or they're quite experienced themselves, and they do this all the time. They know what they want in it. And so that's not the practice of law. If those same people set up a shop drafting legal documents for other people, other companies, that might well be considered to be the practice forbidden practice of law or not, the the field is...
0: And in that case, what happens? So if you're engaged in what is deemed to be the practice of law and you're not a lawyer, what type of consequences could you face?
1: In most states, the practice of law by a non-lawyer, meaning... and and let's deal with it most broadly, meaning somebody who's not admitted to practice anywhere, never been admitted to practice. That would be what we call the unauthorized practice of law, acronym UPL, and it's a crime in most states. In most states, it's at least a misdemeanor. In some states, it could even be a felony under the right circumstances. And so subjecting the non-lawyer to potentially criminal prosecution um forfeiture of fees injunctive relief
0: and today we'll be talking a little bit about something related which is lawyers who may be practicing outside of their jurisdictions why don't we start with the the basic constraints how are lawyers limited by the jurisdictions where they're admitted
1: well their license is is a statewide license uh, if, if you're licensed to practice in new york it, It licenses you to practice in New York, not in New Jersey, not in Connecticut. If you live in New Jersey and travel to your New York office every day to practice law, you're fine. If you were to set up a home office in your New Jersey home, however, that might not be fine.
0: So when you go home and you do a little bit of work or you're thinking about your client as you're brushing your teeth, you might be involved in inappropriate or extraterritorial practice?
1: (laughs) So it might not be a problem uh, because there are certain exceptions and and understandings and conventions. But let's make no mistake, there you are in your New Jersey home office or at the dining room table, writing a brief, uh, editing a a deal document. um, Taking a client call? Taking a client call, emailing to colleagues and clients about law matters. Are you not practicing law? Well, the answer is you are practicing law because when you're, let's say, editing the the, the contract, you're going to bill for that time, presumably. Now, our rules in some states, in most states these days, permit lawyers who are not admitted to practice in that state to come from other jurisdictions and practice there on a temporary basis. This is a relatively... Uh, expanding doctrine called the temporary practice of law or multi-jurisdictional practice. It permits lawyers, it would permit, for example, a New York lawyer to come to New Jersey on a temporary basis because New Jersey has such a rule and be there temporarily, meaning without a permanent office, not for a long time, for a one matter only, one client only. In fact, I think most jurisdictions, maybe all jurisdictions, permit lawyers to uh, go home and work in their home offices at night, provided they have an office in the jurisdiction where they're actually admitted, permit lawyers to go on vacation and do work, would that they didn't, uh, without running afoul of of UPL bans.
0: So the exceptions allow you to, to continue to practice with some common sense that occasionally you're out of your state. Yes. <laughs> a hesitant yes.
1: It's a hesitant yes because one can think of exceptions and situations which arise which go beyond present rules or, or, or present con- conventions and states from time to time change their own views on what's permitted in the, those states.
0: Why don't we talk about an example? Where can lawyers or where have lawyers gone afoul of of these rules.
1: Well, I mean, there's a famous case from many years ago, the Beer Brower case, which was a California case in which New York lawyers appeared in California at an arbitration where law license is not required and where pro hoc vice admission was not possible. And at that California arbitration, they represented a client and at the end of the arbitration billed the client the client refused to pay saying the lawyers had been engaged in the unauthorized practice of law so beer Brower unleashed a flood of of cases and concerns around the country
0: well what happened in the case were they were they successful were the was the client able to get out of the bill
1: Yes, they, the client was able to get out of the bill, in fact, and the, and the California court said that, that the lawyers could not bill for services rendered in California where they were not admitted.
0: And the justification was that that should have been done by a California lawyer?
1: The justification was that those particular lawyers were not admitted to practice in California and therefore couldn't charge legal fees for work done in California. Needless to say, many lawyers and law firms around the country were, were very troubled by this result, upset to say the least. And, and I think it's fair to say that it, it started a sea change in our approach to this problem.
0: There in Beer these New York lawyers were ultimately punished or lost their fee for practicing out of state. Has that particular rule, or that particular prohibition, changed.
1: California, not long after that, adopted a pro-ac-vice rule for arbitrations. Yes.
0: So they allowed a process for out-of-state lawyers to get approval or permission.
1: Yes. And California, uh, since then, has also uh, taken steps to allow what we call foreign jurisdiction lawyers. So, lawyers admit outside California to come to California for temporary practice. So, I think that that deals would be covered by the temporary practice rule, provided you met all the, the specifics in the rule.
0: Why don't we look at the practice of law that's probably the most regulated, and that's appearance in court. When it comes to actual litigation or criminal defense, courts tend to be more particular about having local counsel. Yet there's still ways for lawyers to practice out of state.
1: Well, if you're appearing in a litigation matter, whether it's civil or, or, or criminal, as as a lawyer, you make an application to the court where you would like to appear uh, to uh, for pro hoc VJ permission to appear and
0: pro hoc vice meaning
1: for the matter
0: just for that particular case for that
1: particular case and in most cases the court will grant that application after all we value the client's right to choose counsel we say we value it at very highly
0: conditions like perhaps retaining also local counsel or yes. limiting the number of pro hoc vice appearances by that lawyer
1: yes exactly so uh, that it's not a substitute for the lawyer actually getting admitted in the jurisdiction. The lawyer has to be in good standing in, a, in the lawyer's home jurisdiction, often have local counsel, agree to be ba- bound by the local rules of professional conduct, sometimes pay a fee, almost inevitably pay a fee. Sometimes... Why not? Why of not? But that's a relatively easy part to address. The slightly more complicated aspect of that is what if the lawyer gets retained before a, a civil complaint is filed to do the, in, the pre-litigation investigation?
0: So there's not yet a court that they can go to, to request hac right. vice status.
1: Precisely. And So can the lawyer co- come into a jurisdiction where the lawyer is not licensed to interview witnesses, meet with potential co-parties? of the lawyer, sometimes it's in anticipation of a litigation being filed against a client. You know it's coming, it hasn't happened yet. Can you go in to, to act as a lawyer, meeting with people? In and at a,
0: what point are they required to represent or to retain local counsel?
1: Yes, right, so the temporary practice rule that's in place in most jurisdictions these days does require the association of local counsel who agrees to be responsible for the matter and for the visiting lawyer? Uh, so it's not an insignificant role.
0: So is it simply having a lawyer who vouches for you in your in your visiting state, or does that lawyer have to be actively involved in the case?
1: Well, the lawyer has to be responsible in the case. The degree of activity is not specified, but the re- but the legal responsibility means that the lawyer is. Uh, as a civil matter, meaning the lawyer's malpractice policy is on the line. It also means that that the lawyer is in some sense uh, professionally obliged in a disciplinary or licensing context also to have a real role in the case, how much of a role will depend on the matter, I imagine, and perhaps on the client's pocketbook because the client is now obliged to pay for the local counsel as well. Lawyers do frequently go to take jurisdi- depositions, conduct discovery of varying kinds, in jurisdictions where they're not admitted. In many cases, it's frankly not feasible, it's not cost effective to associate with local counsel. Time may be pressing, nobody can be found, and then what happens? And so. It can get very tricky. I think many lawyers, if they think about it at all, some do, think, okay, I won't get in a lot of trouble if I do this. And in fact, if they're admitted somewhere, and uh, that's probably correct. It should give everybody a little bit of pause because in many cases it is in fact the technical unauthorized practice of law, not without any risk.
0: There we're talking about litigation, where there are clear pro hoc vice rules for admission, where it gets a little bit more complex. Are the other aspects of the legal practice, which may be just advising clients, maybe assisting on deals, which cause the lawyer to have to cross state lines or to advise on issues that are taking place in other states?
1: I think transactional lawyers, as as we call them, do this all the time. Uh, They're... It's common for clients to be spread out all over the country, for clients to, to be spread out all over the world, and to want their lawyers to come to many different jurisdictions for the purpose of, of, of rendering legal advice to the client, taking a look at the client's activities or operations. Or and even just
0: to have a face-to-face conversation precisely. with their lawyer.
1: And all of those things, as w- we said in the beginning, are the practice of law when done by the the lawyer. And so is the lawyer on treacherous ground in doing those things? Transactional lawyers can lose fees if um, if there's later a problem with the client and the client doesn't want to pay. It used to happen that clients would say, well, I don't have to pay. You weren't licensed in this jurisdiction where you rendered those services.
0: So this is seen as a client loophole if... if something goes wrong, or perhaps if they decide they don't want to pay that big bill.
1: Now, to a large extent, I think that temporary practice rules adopted in most states have uh, eliminated a, a lot of these concerns, but not all of them, because those rules still require the association of local counsel when the lawyer goes into a state where the lawyer is not licensed. I think it's fair to say that for transactional work, the Association of Local Counsel rarely happens unless, in the context of the particular matter or client set of client needs, there's a real need, a perceived need for the local counsel expertise.
0: How about if they're staying put? Let's say mm. I'm a New York lawyer practicing here in my New York office in downtown Manhattan, and I'm doing all the work here, but one of my clients has to, happens to be based in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Am I running afoul of any of these legal issues? If I'm advising, perhaps, if the contract is drafted with Nebraska law, or if you know we're dealing with assets that are held in Nebraska?
1: Good question. So Joel, I, I, you're a New York lawyer, sitting in your New York office. In my view, for the most part, you can sit in your New York office where you're admitted to practice and advise on the law of New York, you can advise on the law of the United States, you can advise on the law of Nebraska, you can advise on the law of...
0: Papua New Guinea.
1: <laughs> Papua New Guinea. And you're f- fine. Subject to, to the limitations on, of your competence, frankly, and your, or your ability to effectively research the laws of those other jurisdictions and give your clients good, competent advice your malpractice policy protects them if you get it wrong, but you're not violating any unauthorized practice of law statute or the Code of Professional Responsibility or the Rules of Professional Conduct, I should say. What happens when you leave your New York office and go to Nebraska to visit your client and you're not admitted in Nebraska it's not a, a matter where you can get admitted pro hac vice.
0: Then do we have to avoid talking about legal issues and just talk about no. sports and golf, or can I no. can I sit down and have a frank discussion with my client?
1: I think the temporary practice rules, for the most part, protect you. But suppose your client s- says, "Listen, I I really need you to have an office here because I would like you here one week a month, or two weeks out of every month," and and it's, let's say it's a big enough client, big enough set of matters, and you're willing to do this if it's permitted. Well, now, you're, it's not temporary practice anymore because you're proposing to set up some sort of a presence in a state where you're not admitted. And that becomes problematic. Countries in the EU per, permit this to, for their lawyers. We in the United States do not yet permit this.
0: Maybe okay visiting... On a on a here and there basis, but if it's a certain scheduled amount of time or enough time so that you're spending a significant part of your practice there, right. but how do you draw that line?
1: It's going to be the rule of reason, and and I think for the most part, um, in close questions, lawyers will will get an opinion from somebody else to say, this is okay, that's not okay. In other cases, the lawyers themselves will know, you know when they've crossed the line or they're getting near it.
0: So what happens if you're a lawyer who believes they're effectively practicing under the temporary authorization, but it turns out that you're not? How does that affect that lawyer, and how does it affect the attorney-client relationship?
1: Well, it could put the lawyer... At, at some risk, and I think it would largely be a licensing risk, conceivably a civil liability risk, not likely to be a criminal investigatory, investigation risk.
0: And certainly a risk of maybe not getting paid?
1: Possibly a risk of not getting paid, but if the lawyer has taken reasonable steps to ensure that the lawyer's within the rule and just happens that it wasn't the case, the lawyer shouldn't be at personal risk. But what happens, as you say, to the to the nature of the, the 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 work done? Is it legal work?
0: Is it protected? Is it is privileged? It
1: prote- is it pr- privileged, protected? And I think the answer has to be um, with some exceptions that it is protected and is privileged, assuming everything else was complied with. There was a, a case not too long ago in, in the Southern District, the Gucci versus Guest case, in which the judge, in an analogous situation, the judge shinlin concluded that in fact, a, a lawyer who had been, was not in, admitted in the jurisdiction where the lawyer was, was practicing as in-house counsel. Nonetheless, the client believed reasonably that the lawyer was authorized to practice and therefore, the client's communications with the lawyer were protected.
0: We've been talking about U.S. lawyers from various states mm-hmm. practicing in a multi-jurisdictional way. What happens when lawyers from other countries come here to the U.S. and want to advise their clients, their clients existing perhaps in the U.S., perhaps back in, in Europe or, or where they're from? What issues are raised there?
1: A lot of issues, and in fact, it's it's a huge um, area, and and I think has been for many years. In that, it's not only companies, um, foreign companies, wanting advice from in the U.S. Uh, fr- from lawyers admitted in 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 their home countries, uh, but also tra- citizens of one country moving, having businesses. Uh, or family uh, involvements in now two countries and wanting advice from a lawyer in their home country while they're here in the U.S. and wanting not to have to go back to the old country to get that. Um, So
0: You could imagine, here in New York, I may want German law advice on purchasing a home in Germany from a German lawyer who's sitting in in town.
1: Yes, exactly. Or a German citizen who comes to New York on, uh, on a regular basis who owns property here or would like to own property here and wants advice on German tax consequences for, from a local German lawyer who is not admitted <laughs> in New York but is admitted to practice in Germany. Is that a problem? It depends. Um, it can be and in some cases it, it, it might not be so that we have... The, a provision in New York and other sta- some other states do as well for the admission of, of foreign legal consultants so that a lawyer in another state who complies with, with certain uh, requirements in the foreign legal consultant set of rules uh, can get admitted here in New York as a foreign legal consultant, licensed to practice the law of his or her home jurisdiction in New York, hold themselves out as a foreign legal consult- consultants licensed in New York, authorized in, in New York, and advise both uh, New York citizens and residents and residents of, and citizens of the home country on the law of that state.
0: Okay, a quick break for our MCLE code for lawyers who are getting continued education for this interview. The code for this interview is 042617. Again, that's 042617. And now back to the interview. This is an exception to the requirement that in order to practice law that you must be admitted here in the United States.
1: And it's a whole special category of of, of foreign lawyers rendering legal advice under a specific grant of authority that, that, that endures. And foreign legal consultants can get investigated and disciplined by New York disciplinary authorities who are empowered to do this. It does happen. They get licensed as a foreign legal consultant and they can get disciplined as well. So they're
0: still subject to the New York bar and New York courts. Yes. Another issue involves relocation. So let's say I'm moving to a new jurisdiction intending to take the bar. What responsibilities can I take on in the interim period? And what obligations do I have for disclosure during that period?
1: It very much depends on where you're moving to. So the, the, across the country, there's a, just a patchwork of different rules on this. So some jurisdictions, uh, the, the District of Columbia leaps to mind, permit lawyers to come to the district b- before they're admitted there, um, to make arrangements to take the bar coming up, and to be there, resident in D.C., as lawyers and practice law.
0: So you can continue practicing in D.C.?
1: For up to 360 days. And then then that temporary permission um, expires, and there are a few other conditions uh, that you have to meet as as well. New York does not not have a temporary practice pending admission rule, however.
0: So if you're a California lawyer, and you're coming to New York, you're planning to work here, what do you have to do?
1: What do you have to do? So first and foremost... You should not be hanging out your shingle on your own. You should not be becoming a solo practitioner, taking on your clients. That would put you in an extremely difficult position. The exception might be if you were do, had a practice limited to federal matters and...
0: Say, trademark.
1: Yeah, where there's a federal exception carved out with the nice supreme court opinion to protect you in that in that case but barring that if you were coming to a firm and that's the most common thing you've got a job in in new york let's let's say you're admitted somewhere else but you have to take the new york bar
0: perhaps you're not even changing firms you might be in the latham la office and you're moving to new york within Pre- the same firm
1: precisely something like that in which case The firm wants to know, because the firm doesn't want to get in any ethical hot water at all, the firm wants to know how it describes you permissibly on its website, on on the business cards it's going to give you, on the letters you're going to send out. And also you want to know what you can do here, how you can hold yourself out. And so a problem in many cases to work out and to thread that needle. So, so the first and foremost thing you do or not do is hold yourself out as a New York lawyer. So the firm where that's transferring you to its New York office would be very careful to have you described on the website um, as not admitted in New York, admitted only in, in whatever your home state is or admission pending, not yet admitted in New York, whatever the truth of the matter is so that it's clear to anybody viewing that that you're not authorized to practice law in New so York. So the category. affirmative
0: obligation of saying not admitted yes. rather than the prohibition of saying that you are admitted.
1: Right. So you can't you can't to hold yourself out as a New York lawyer and with any context where somebody might assume you're a New York lawyer, you're listed on the letterhead of a New York law firm, for example, you have to correct that misimpression by having the Asterisk and, and your the, the actual limitations on your licensing spelled out. Then there are certain activities that you can't do until you're admitted, such as appear in a New York court without either being admitted in New York or admitted on a pro hoc vice basis. And there are certain you would need to work under the supervision of an or or a conjunction with a New York admitted lawyer. This would be true even for senior people coming to the New York office of a firm, that they might need to be sort of technically supervised in some sense by somebody who's in fact a slightly junior lawyer.
0: And you could imagine it could be, let's say, the chairman of a major law firm decides to take his practice and his his right. home and move to another state, he might need to be supervised by someone who right. ostensibly works underneath him.
1: Certainly for purposes of advising on on matters in general, but also you might carve out and say, okay, while you're resident in the New York office of this New York firm, but not yet admitted here, you will not give advice on New York law, which you could have done from your home office, by the way, in the jurisdiction where you're actually admitted. But if you're in New York and you're not admitted here and you're really here permanently, full-time, then you have to be much more careful.
0: That's interesting. It creates kind of a paradox where you could imagine a lawyer saying, unfortunately, I can't comment on, on this New York law issue unless I fly back to San Francisco and we hop on a conference call.
1: Or you say, you know, well, you pull into the room or the conference room, we're onto the conference call, a New York admitted lawyer, uh, or you say, we're having this checked out by other lawyers in the firm. I mean, it needn't be such a big deal where you have to fly home.
0: Is there a prohibition on joining the partnership of a New York law firm if you're not yet admitted to that state?
1: No, that's okay.
0: How about in-house? So lawyers in-house are engaged in the practice of law, they are also employees of a non-legal organization, uh, a regular corporation. Are there different requirements or different obligations for in-house counsel?
1: Well, they're the same obligations. And in some sense, the, the professional lives of in-house counsel can be very complicated. It's the practice in many large corporations to move their senior people or their management level uh, employees around every couple of years from office to office so they get steeped in the culture of, of, of the company, a very good practice in many cases. But if you're admitted in one state and the, the company s- sends you to be in-house counsel on another and you know you're only going to be there for, for a short time, do you bother to take the bar of that state and get admitted and pay more? Fees, fees for the exam, fees for registration.
0: Maybe you have to take a week off of of your practice to to sit for another bar.
1: Right. Well, for many years, in-house counsel thought they didn't have to be admitted in all the jurisdictions in which they were working, or deployed by their companies, and that created havoc for them, because in many cases when they ultimately wanted to get admitted in, in a jurisdiction where they'd come to roost for a while, they found they couldn't wave in on the basis of their experience and original at bar admission somewhere, because they hadn't practiced for the required number of years, recently enough, in many cases. In that
0: foreign, in that other jurisdiction. In
1: their home jurisdiction. And they'd been out of status, out of authorization for too long. So they were back to, you know, square one in having to take a bar exam in a new state and then having a further complication of dealing with a character fitness committee that wanted to know why they had been practicing for so many years in so many jurisdictions where they weren't admitted to the bar. So in its wisdom, the the, the uh, American Bar Association a number of years ago proposed the in-house counsel registration rule, which many states, including New York, have adopted, so that a a lawyer who's coming to New York has a certain window of time, it's a short window, to register as an in-house counsel in New York.
0: So I can continue to practice in the state where I'm admitted, advising clients in other states. There are limits where I can go and show up in court, but a path to pro hoc vice appearance. And then when I'm traveling in some states, there's a temporary program. Is the message you're giving to everyone just tread lightly?
1: Be careful out there. For more legal explainers and interviews with the
0: titans of law, visit TalksonLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksonLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.